I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, 2017. Coming up, we talk with two scientists about the Cassini mission to Saturn, what we learned about the famous ringed planet, and the final goodbye to a trusty spacecraft. We begin at a look at some of the recent news in science. The microbiome has been in the news a lot lately, and here's more. Using pregnant mice, researchers from the U.S. and Japan collaborated to examine the role of the microbiome in producing autism-like symptoms in offspring. They found that infection with certain types of bacteria, which are not members of the typical gut community, can cause abnormal behavior in the pups. Here's the backstory. In both primates and rodents, activation of the mother's immune system causes inflammation. Inflammation, in turn, causes the proliferation of a class of immune system cells known as T-cells that release a compound which increases the inflammatory response. This is a good response when fighting bacteria, but the inflammatory compound induces behavioral and brain abnormalities in the offspring. The researchers exposed the pregnant mice to specific bacteria that were known to activate this immune response. Some of these bacteria also infect humans. In the treated mice, the pups showed developmental and behavioral abnormalities, such as repetitive behaviors, increased anxiety, increased distress vocalizations, and deficits in social interactions. When the mothers were treated with antibiotics after infection, the pups that were born were normal. The results highlight the role of bacteria in influencing the complex maternal environment during pregnancy. Although the study did not definitively identify species of bacteria that may cause syndromes like autism, it did show that excessive inflammation is a potential contributing factor. The good news is that the presence of inflammation can be diagnosed and used as an indicator of potential risk during pregnancy. In other news, we've all heard problems about the overuse of opioid drugs such as OxyContin. There's another drug, a natural hormone with a similar name but a different purpose. It's oxytocin. Oxytocin plays a role in love, trust, maternal instincts, and bonding. Genetic variations affect the mammalian response to oxytocin, and Swedish scientists wanted to learn more about them. So they decided to test oxytocin in the ultimate of bondable, friendly mammals, dogs, specifically golden retrievers. First, they collected DNA from 60 dogs by using a cotton swab inside the dog's cheek. And in addition to the DNA, we suspect the scientists also got a few friendly licks. Then these researchers sprayed the nose of each dog with that bonding hormone oxytocin. Last but not least, the researchers gave their tail-wagging test subjects a tasty treat with a catch. The treat was in a container with a tightly closed lid that's actually impossible for any dog to open. 
To measure cooperative inclinations, the researchers timed how long it took each fluffy golden to ask a human to, well, literally lend a hand and open the lid. The results are published this week in Hormones and Behavior. The researchers say their data will help scientists better understand which genetic variant of the oxytocin receptor leads to the most cooperative behavior. And the payoff for the Goldens? Well, each dog did finally get a treat. You may know that computers store information in bits, which can have values of one or zero. The concept of quantum computers uses data in what are called qubits, where, taking advantage of the properties of quantum mechanics, it can store and calculate with data that can be many values between one and zero at the same time. Now, for the first time, engineers from Caltech and their colleagues around the world, including from Boulder's National Institute of Standards and Technology, have developed a computer chip with nanoscale optical quantum memory. Now, this quantum memory stores information in photons of light as opposed to current computers that store data as electronic charges in materials such as silicon. The photon-based system takes advantage of those peculiar features of quantum mechanics to store data more efficiently and securely. The authors state that this technology not only leads to extreme miniaturization of quantum memory devices, but it also enables better control of the interactions between individual photons and atoms, resulting in more reliable data storage and retrieval and calculations. This study appeared online ahead of publication by Science Magazine. And finally, on the science calendar, tonight, Denver's Café Scientifique will host astronomer and NASA mission team member Constantine Tsang, whose presentation is titled The Search for Meteorites in Antarctica, How to Bring the Planets to Us. In his presentation and subsequent audience discussion, Dr. Tsang will talk about meteorites, his experience hunting for them in Antarctica, and what we can learn from them. These pieces of rock and metal have traveled hundreds of millions of miles to reach Earth. They are the actual pieces of the moon, of Mars, and asteroids that we can actually pick up and study in the lab. He will discuss what they look like, what secrets they can unlock about our solar system, and how you could find them. That's tonight at 6.30 at the Denver Café Scientifique at the Blake Street Tavern in the heart of Lower Downtown on Blake Street between Park Avenue and 24th Streets. More details at cafecolorado.org.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. The music in the background is a song by Jeff Oster titled Saturn Calling. The sounds at the beginning of the piece are based on Saturn's auroras as detected by NASA's Cassini spacecraft after converting the data to the audible range. The Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn launched 20 years ago on October 15, 1997. It took seven years to reach Saturn and has been orbiting and intensely studying Saturn ever since. Until last week, when the mission ended in a final dive into Saturn's atmosphere. The mission studied Saturn, its famous rings, its many moons, using a suite of instruments that observed from the ultraviolet to visible infrared and radio, as well as examining dust, charged particles, and magnetic fields. It also delivered the Huygens probe that descended through the atmosphere of Saturn's giant moon, Titan. I have with me in the studio today two local scientists from the Cassini mission team, Dr. Larry Esposito is a professor at the Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department at the University of Colorado at Boulder and a member of the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at CU. My other guest is Dr. Carly Howitt, a planetary scientist and manager at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder. They are here to share with us some of the science from Cassini, and experiences working on such a long-term and successful space mission. Welcome to How on Earth, Larry and Carly. Thank you. Good morning. So Cassini was this amazing mission. The pictures we've seen coming back from Saturn, I think, will stand the test of time for a long time. But Cassini wasn't the only spacecraft to, to visit Saturn, and there have been observations going back for quite a ways. So before we dive into Cassini, as it were, um, Larry, perhaps can you give a little historical context about kind of the uh, history of Saturn exploration? So Saturn is one of the most beautiful sights in the sky, and uh, anyone with a small telescope can see Saturn and its rings. Professional astronomers have been looking at Saturn for centuries, and especially at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, where I did my PhD thesis, uh, taking photographs of Saturn and its rings. Space exploration of Saturn begins in 1979 with the Pioneer 11 mission, which flew by, followed by the Voyager 1 and 2 missions in 1980 and 81, and then uh, the Cassini mission, which arrived in 2004. And each of these missions has been more capable than the past and more capable than observations from the Earth. And every time we learn more and, in fact, surprisingly new discoveries about Saturn, its moons and rings, and Cassini uh, with a great, with a fantastic mission of uh, 13 years in orbit around Saturn added to that exploration. Now, when I was a kid, Saturn was my favorite planet, if you're allowed to have favorites, just because it had rings. That was cool, right? You know? Um, but other than the coolness factor, um, what, is, what are some of the scientific drivers uh, that have us going back to Saturn again and again? 
there are a lot of interesting things about the Saturn system. I mean, Saturn itself is a, an interesting place. Uh, it's we, We've looked at Jupiter in the past. Galileo looked at Jupiter in detail. And understanding the difference between gas giants' planets helps us understand a little bit more about the evolution of our own solar system. So that's important. But the Saturn system itself is very diverse. In particular, it has a ring system um, and that's uh, important in terms of understanding again the evolution of our own solar system um, and how uh, small bodies might be disrupted and become rings and maybe um, that's something that's a kind of a current question and we don't really understand how old Saturn's rings are it's one of the the things that Cassini hoped to really help with at the end of its mission uh, but the moons itself at Saturn as well are very interesting they're incredibly diverse we have Titan that has an atmosphere uh, it's bigger than Mercury so it's an enormous world uh, then there's little little moons, uh, Enceladus, which is about the size of the UK, which is an analogy I enjoy <laughs> for somewhat obvious reasons, um, has geysers coming out of it. It's an active world. Uh, and that was something that until we sort of had hints of, but until Cassini got there and could really spend the time looking at it, we, we didn't really know how active it was and how that activity worked. And so that's been um, very interesting too. And then there's sort of... Ev icy worlds that go in between that sort of some are, are geologically dead and very ancient surfaces and, and some have hints that there was previous activity that has now gone there was hints of ancient rings around other moons and so uh, we really needed a spacecraft to hang out in the system and spend some time really looking at those worlds at different times at different epochs um, to, to kind of understand those surfaces understand the atmosphere understand seasonal changes and that's what Cassini gave us so going to Saturn isn't just about the planet in the rings but the moons are a significant factor here in going back uh, repeatedly to uh, to see Saturn so uh, you mentioned uh, Titan and Enceladus uh, there are several other moons and but they also control the rings themselves, right? There are several small moons um, that orbit within the ring system, and um, they're sometimes referred to as shepherd moons because they have a large impact on the, the way that the rings uh, look. And so you can see the effects of the little moon's gravitation on the rings themselves. They move the particles around as they go by, and they sort of leave waves in the rings. Uh, make gaps in the rings and all sorts of fun things. So it's like a little, little mini solar system. If you you can think of that, you know, this, if the Saturn rings are the sort of disk that things form out of, and then these little moons are analogous to the you know sort of early early stages of the planets that we know now. So it's a way of studying sort of disk accretion and solar system formation in a small sort of different environment. Accessible in space and time, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Without, a, without the TARDIS, uh, we, can, we can study this. So that's our, lo our nearest local laboratory for this sort of disk <laughs> behavior. And the relationship isn't just a physical interaction. There may also be a genetic relationship where moons can be broken up to make rings and the ring particles can collect together to make moons. And in fact, there's good evidence that this process is going on at the moment in Saturn's rings and we can see the rings change before our eyes. And you were able to see that with Cassini, changes over time in the rings. Right, we see changes uh, since Voyager, but even changes during the mission. And we see behavior in the rings that show they change on the time scale in times as short as a few hours. Few hours seems very short in astronomical terms, <laughs> uh, and the rings are very narrow too. You know, they look—I mean, they're broad, but they're very thin. How thin, roughly? Maybe ten meters thick. That, so they're thinner incredible. than a sheet of paper. That's incredible. 
So, so Larry, uh, tell us what your involvement is on the Cassini mission. Well, one of the 12 experiments on the mission uh, on the Cassini orbiter is an ultraviolet imaging spectrograph built here at the University of Colorado, where we wrote the original proposal, developed the experiment, uh, built it, delivered it, operated the experiment until Friday morning when we received data <laughs> in the very last packet of information. And now we're analyzing those observations and we'll be writing uh, papers and PhD theses and books from what we've learned about Saturn and its rings. For years to come. Uh, so as, as PI of the, the UVIS instrument, when did your involvement start in Conceity? How, how, how far back does your experience go here in Conceity? So I was involved in some of the advisory uh, information to NASA about Cassini. My first Cassini meeting was in July 1982 in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But my official involvement started when I received a phone call from NASA in 1990 when I was informed that the university had been selected to build one of the experiments. And since that time, that has been my major task and of a group of dozens at the University of Colorado, faculty, researchers, graduate and undergraduate students. A whole army of scientists. So Carly, what is your involvement in the mission? So I've been in the mission since 2005. Uh, I'm involved in the Composite Infrared Spectrometer, uh, which is shortened to SEERS. And I'm a, a co-eye on that, which means I'm just sort of there to, to help out, really. Um, and so I've been planning the observations of the icy moons of Saturn since then. And so um, we get, I'm, I've been lucky enough to be able to plan the observations and then be involved in the data analysis, which is a very rare thing on a mission. It's a very privileged position. Um, so you're, you're, on the one hand, you're trying to make observations that you know will stand the test of time. These are the only observations we're likely to get in the next you know, near future of these targets. And so you want to make observations that are good for the entire community and trying to cover the breadth of, of things that we might want to look at, you know, PhD theses for the next 20 years. But on the flip side, you know, everyone has their little sort of targets of interest and po 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 um, projects that they're sort of self-interested in. So I was enabled to take observations that, you know, were able to kind of fit in with that, but also, you know, with my, my particular loves and, and interests. So it was a, a very... Um, privileged position and one that I've been very happy in in the last you know 12 years so so you weren't there for the launch uh, I mean sadly not <laughs> it's the thing of legends but I was um, in high school <laughs> so that's the thing about these long missions is you have a lot of yeah. you know cycling absolutely kind of handing off to other generations and trying to keep up the absolutely. the knowledge of the people who built the instruments it's a big part of it. Um, and missions that are being planned right now also have, you know, legacy ideas. People, you know, when you're planning these 20-year budgets, people's um, funding actually, you know, kind of runs out at some point because they might be retired and things like that. So uh, we actually plan that into long-term missions that, you know, people people go on to do other things. And um, it's But it's important to retain that knowledge because how things are built, how things are calibrated is an important part of understanding the data that we get back. And so it's absolutely imperative that that knowledge is retained. And similarly, going forward, um, that's one of the things we're doing in the next year. Both Larry and I are involved in what are called closeout activities. So, you know, making sure that all of those little things that we know that sort of in seem intuitive to us are, are written down so that generations to come will better be able to understand this data set. Well, if you just tuned in, you're listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm your host, Joel Parker, and my guests today are planetary scientists, Dr. Larry Esposito and Dr. Carly Howitt. 
talking about the Cassini mission to Saturn, a mission that ended just last week on Friday after nearly 20 years in space, 13 of those orbiting Saturn. So I, again, this is kind of like picking favorite children, but Larry, what, what do you see as some of the most significant results that came out of Cassini? So there are really big results. The discovery of methane lakes on Titan, erupting geysers of water from Enceladus, showing an underground ocean where life might arise or even exist now, the multifaceted rings and moons of Saturn, and particularly for me, the structure in Saturn's rings, which I've been studying for 40 years, I was just surprised by the photographs that showed mountainous clumps in Saturn's rings sticking up at the moment that the sun set on the rings, lighting up like the tips of a mountain at uh, sunset. And this sort of structure, this sort of dynamics, was completely unexpected and, at this moment, still somewhat unexplained. It, it must have been incredible to be studying a topic such as the rings for such a long time, probably a lot of modeling as well as ground-based observations, and then to be there and to see it in detail and even evolving. I mean, it's a fantastic experience, and um, we weren't prepared. Our models are always too simple. Nature is more complicated and more interesting and more beautiful than I had expected. And, and that's a good thing. It's, in, in science, it's great to be surprised. <laughs> it's amazing how one image can revolutionize everything we ever knew. And Cassini has returned so many images um, that it's absolutely revolutionized our understanding of the entire system. And the images, I mean, people, you know, the images get all the press. <laughs> Squiggly lines don't get so much press. But you both work a little with squiggly lines there, right? So, so Carly, what are, what are some of the non-image data that you worked on that had interesting results? I think probably the, the main one was understanding the heat flow. So the, in, the instrument I work on gives you an idea of what surface temperatures of moons are. And so by, by converting squiggly lines to temperatures, we had a better understanding of how hot Enceladus was. Um, Larry's already touched a little bit on, on this interesting moon, and, and it, it's the one with geysers. So by understanding the heat, we can better understand the geyser system and what the conditions are and whether they're right for life. And so it's an by understanding the temperature, it kind of is an important part of the jigsaw of understanding the astrobiology, you know, whether there is life, whether this moon can sustain life. And so that's been, um, it had its own challenges. Um, converting wiggly lines to temperatures, it turns out, is a little <laughs> bit more complicated than um, you might hand-wavingly expect. Um, but it's, it's an important part of the jigsaw, and that's been a lot of fun to work on. And the moons are fascinating. I mean, you have a moon Enceladus that may have some ocean underneath and possibly harboring life. You have Titan with oceans of a different flavor. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it really is quite the laboratory there. Uh, Larry, what about uh, from your instrument? What are some of your favorite children? So, <laughs> so the wiggles in our lines show uh, fingerprints of the constituents, what the uh, atmosphere and uh, the space between the moons is made of. And on the way to Saturn, we discovered the fingerprints of oxygen atoms that had never been seen before. They were quite a surprise. And later, we discovered the fingerprints of water molecules, which are the source of these oxygen atoms. Uh, so the molecules break up into H2 and O, and the O was what our first indication was of the water that was erupting from the moon Enceladus. 
So we could go on for hours about the results, and people will go on, as you said, for years writing theses about these. But the mission came to an end. So uh, you were both there, I believe, at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena for the end of mission. Um, first, why, why did the mission end? It depends on how cynical you want to be. Um, one answer is money. You know, NASA only has finite funds and it costs a lot to operate a spacecraft. And they, you know, Saturn's had its time and you could move on to other things. Um, the fuel was running out. We were on fumes. We'd all, and we'd, we wanted to make sure that the, the spacecraft was disposed of in a responsible manner, as we've talked about Enceladus, might have life. Um, we were operating under the sort of primary directive, you know, do no harm. And so we were... Um, we wanted to make sure that the spacecraft wasn't left in sort of an arbitrary orbit where it could eventually hit Enceladus and maybe um, you know, bring contamination to that pristine world. And so by ditching it into Saturn, we were sort of responsibly disposing of our, um, of our trash, if you like. For um, future generations to search for life. Absolutely. So uh, the spacecraft is just an inanimate object, but working on it for <laughs> so long and seeing, seeing the end here... What was the mood in the room? What did what did it feel like to you for, to see the last blip? So we were there in person, and it was a bit sad. But at the same time, the mission has great accomplishments, and there was a sense of pride and celebration. And if it was a funeral, it was more like an Irish wake. We lifted <laughs> a glass of whiskey and uh, celebrated the achievements of the Cassini mission. Oh, that's a, that's a great image there. Yes, because it really is a celebration in many, many ways. Uh, just a last question here, looking forward to the future. Uh, what is in the future for Saturn? Right now, it's a bit of an open question. So there are two proposals that NASA is considering right now, one to go back to Titan and the other one to go back to Enceladus. Um, in, the, in terms of exploring potentially you know, icy worlds that may have life, uh, there's the Europa Clipper mission, which is a, a mission that's actually um, been approved by Na NASA um, that's going to go back and look at Jupiter's icy world, uh, Europa, that may or may not have plumes. That's kind of an open question right now. And so there's... There, there are things on the table, um, but in terms of going back to the Saturn system, there's nothing firm. But in terms of exploring icy worlds, there is something on the cards. Plenty of good alternatives, which NASA plans to select from in the next few months. Well, excellent. That, that gives us and <laughs> our scientific children a chance to have something to look forward to. Well, that was Dr. Carly Howitt and Dr. Larry Esposito talking about the Cassini mission to Saturn and just a small sample of the results from the treasure trove of data returned to us by that mission. For more information, visit saturn.jpl.nasa.gov. Thanks for being on the show, Larry and Carly. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Alejandro Soto. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bartell and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jeff Oster. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? 
Well, call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.